Alex, we missed you at Linux Fest Northwest. It was just a mini fest, so I think if you had to miss it, you probably picked the right one, but your presence was still missed. It was a great fest and a good gathering. I got some serious FOMO listening to you and Jeff and Brent and Wes and everybody talking about all the projects and Noah was there. Yeah. Oh my gosh, we got so much done. So much. I uh I have I'll have so many episodes worth of Hopefully not bad stories, but stories to tell uh, from all the things that we've done. <laughs> I mean, it was one of those weeks where it's like, I don't know, like life has been improved. But uh, the event itself was they had t- they had talks, but they were all back to back in one room. So instead of having to go to all the different rooms to try to catch the talk you wanted to see, you got to just kind of stay in one spot. And because they just picked from a handful of all the talks, it was kind of like the best of the best. And our buddy Brent gave the first talk of the day and i really got a genuine sense of interest in nextcloud from the audience like people are really tuned into what nextcloud's about right now there was genuine interest in questions i I think it's good for the self-hosting community it's an interesting idea having basically a single track conference because it's a self-limiting velocity like you you know even texas linux fest at what 500 to a thousand people you'd struggle to fit that many people in a room and, and for them to all actually be hanging on every word. But You're going to miss some stuff. Exactly, yeah. And, and, and all things open last last week, a couple of weeks ago, you know, it was 5,000-ish people and there were dozens of sessions and dozens of tracks to pick from. And you're like, well, uh, how am I supposed to pick from an entire hour's worth of content from just six keywords on a, a program schedule? That tells me basically nothing. I think sometimes there is there is a real value from being forced to sit through something that you wouldn't have otherwise picked. Yeah, there's that, right? You learn something you, you weren't really actually expecting. I think, too, it helps that they kind of pick the hits. It's like terrestrial TV, you know? If I came in at 11, 11 p.m. on a Friday and there was a crappy movie on, I'd probably carry on watching it, but I'd never pick it. You know what I mean? Yes, yes. I was just talking to Wes about this yesterday. He and I have been watching Pluto.tv, and uh, we were, you're not going to be surprised. We were both watching the same Star Trek show that was streaming on Pluto.tv. I don't believe it. (laughs) Shocking, right? (laughs) And it was a bad, bad episode. But we're like, yeah, you know, we wouldn't have picked this, but because it was chosen for us. Linux Fest, though, was, they were, I thought they were all really great. Our buddy Carl gave a great explanation of the stream. And CentOS history as well as their Apple project. But, you know, I'm already planning for the next events. Like uh, today is my last day in Washington. I'm, this is my last show before I head out to El Salvador. I'm going to be hosting the open source track at Adopting Bitcoin. And then not long after that, Alex, uh, you've got an event coming up. Yeah, next week, I, I literally just booked the flights today, much to the chagrin of my finance controller, leaving it to the last minute. But book the flights for KubeCon. So I'll be in Chicago next week. If you want to come and say hello, obviously I'll be at the Tailscale booth throughout the event, but uh, also there is a GitLab, Tailscale, Pulumi, Nutanix, Outshift, massive DevApps and Brews happy hour going on at Ace Bounce in Chicago. There'll be a link in the show notes to the details for that, yeah. That sounds like a party. Yeah, it should be a party. It should be a good time, absolutely. Tailscale and GitLab getting together? That's great. Come join us for, for an evening filled with food and drinks and music and all that kind of good Kubernetes nerding outing. Yes. And then, you know, not immediately, but in the spring, I am planning to attend Texas Linux Fest and there will be the full Linux Fest Northwest. 
So that's coming up on the long-term radar. It's basically law that we have to both go to Texas Linux Fest because it's across the road from Terry Black's. Yeah. Yeah, and it's also like how we met. And, you know, so it's sort of the origin story of the show. So Yeah, geez. Yeah. Yeah. We got to go. You know what, Alex? Just to put it on your radar, uh, like the week before is the eclipse. And it goes over Austin. And I'm going to show up a week before so I can see that eclipse if you wanna if you wanna show up. I was actually in America for the last one. Yeah. It was good. We were in Utah and we were outside of the zone of totality. And because of the fact that the eclipse was happening, I think it was in like Oregon, like on the border of Oregon. That's where I was, yeah. Washington. Yeah, right. Um everybody wasn't in utah and so we basically had arches and zion and all of those national parks basically to ourselves that's nice we didn't see the full eclipse but eh. i told myself that i would not miss the next one because the 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 next one after this is like 2044 oh wow okay but i was so moved by it i i i i promised myself i would i would catch it and the fact that it's going to be right before texas linux fest it's a sign alex so this one in 2024 goes sort of bottom left to top right of the uh, of the US from yeah. all the way from Austin right the way up through Syracuse over Indianapolis all that kind of way so it's a pretty good band of totality on this one. I had myself a nice uh, data loss scare before the show. You I managed did. to recover. I did. Oh. I I rebooted my Android phone and the bootloader came up instead of the OS and it said no installed OS. Is this the giraffine? Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh oh. On the Pi L seven, and because I'm about to go to El Salvador, I just put about four hundred dollars worth of Sats on the thing about forty five minutes before this happened. <laughs> so I was I was not happy, and uh, it came up no OS. I reboot it. I power it off. I plug it in. Turns on no OS. I unplug it. I reboot it again. No OS. I start panicking, and I rebooted it. I'm not kidding you, Alex. Six more times. I think a total of eight times I counted, and on the eighth reboot, Giraffe OS booted, and everything's been fine. I've rebooted it twice since then, and it's been okay. <laughs> so my data loss scare was was just a scare, and I took that time to just I backed up everything on the phone. I just <laughs> I just went full I went full hog. I mean, this is an audio show, and the listeners can't see, but I'm I'm pulling that kind of what face yeah like that doesn't make any sense like well i can't even trust the device now like i feel like it's a a ticking time bomb exactly and this is the phone i was planning to use on my trip and so now i'm not so sure i'm bringing i think i'm bringing two devices but i did back everything up at least so I, i i took that moment but what are the chances alex in like that couple of hour window where i had made a significant change and hadn't made a backup i lost the system for a bit Particularly a financial change like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was very relieved. I mean, I cannot explain how, I was like, oh, (laughs) like just the biggest sigh of relief when it finally booted. And uh, it does have some built-in backup stuff, and it will actually back up to NextCloud. So I went and did all that, got all the data backed up, and now I'm good to go. But that was a few moments of like really kind of like, oh, crap. Well, I've had some similarly oh crap moments over the last few weeks of my own because it's been a, it's been a hot minute since we got up on the mic together you know because i wasn't here two weeks ago so i actually should probably say thank you to brent for filling in in my absence and jeff of course as well I nearly forgot my uk boxes so i have i have a, a synology that lives at my mum's house and then my old uk linux server which i've talked about on the show many times lives at my mother-in-law's house so i have two remote 
boxes, both in the UK, both at different ends of the UK. One is a ZFS-based system running Proxmox, and the other one is a Synology box that just runs whatever hybrid RAID Synology put together. And then I, I replicate to the Synology using Restic to Minio over S3, and then the ZFS one goes through uh, Sanoid and Syncoid. So that was that was the general idea, right? I've got two self-hosted backup systems with two completely separate backup mechanisms so that if for whatever reason ZFS loses its mind, then the other one carries on just fine. Or if S3 loses its mind for whatever reason, then that one carries on just fine. And and it, it turned out to be quite a prescient thing because about six months ago, or maybe even a little longer, MinIO, which is the project I use to do my S3 replication in the UK, so it provides an S3 storage API on top of a normal Linux system. I run that in a Docker container behind traffic as the load balancer, and then I replicate, as I say, using Restic over Tailscale to get the packets over the ocean. MinIO decided to re-architect how they do their storage underneath somehow. And the upshot of that was it meant that with one of the versions of, of MinIO that I was no longer able to write data to the system or, or move beyond a specific version of MinIO to be specific. And so I'm basically left with a, a, a vault, a time vault of data that I can no longer touch. Read only. Yeah, something like that. And then to add insult to injury, I did a Synology update, like a DSM update, and it just it won't install any apps anymore. So you did a Minnow container update and got their new API or whatever it is, and you got a Synology update and got another second set of problems. So Minio won't start. It's if if it's beyond a certain version, it says Minio won't start because your data structures are you know out of date or we've uh. changed it. Go to this link to find migration instructions, and you go to the link to read the migration instructions, and there are none. The idea is you you set up a second MinIO instance alongside the first one, copy the data over that way, and I'm like, I, I don't have enough space on this remote box for that. Or time. I'm sure as hell I'm not going to replicate, I think it's like seven or eight terabytes across the ocean and then back again. So I've kind of just been ignoring that one because I, I knew that was a problem for like six, eight, 12 months, something like that. That one's been offline for a while. But the data was still there. If I really needed it, I could get to it. It was out of date, but it was there. And then the DSM update, like I say, added insult to injury. So now if I want to load up even FileStation, which is the uh, DSM like file browser app, it just won't load. So I go to the control panel or their app store thing and click update, click install, and I just go around in circles of systemd errors and then nginx errors, and then I... It's just completely done. So I'm going to have to do a factory reset. And the only option for a Synology factory reset includes wiping the data disks. Why? I don't know. I think I think it's because the OS gets installed onto the first data disk. I mean, that's what partitions are for. You know? Right? <laughs> like, I just can't believe that. Wow, that stinks. So that's a public safety announcement with MinIO. And DSM. And you're doing this all across the pond, right? You're doing this all remotely. Yeah, fully remote. So you're you're like you have the full NASA rover experience with all of this. Where it's yeah. like you can yeah. you can do certain things, but if you go too far, you knock your ability out to fix it. 
absolutely then i uh you know i've been so busy with with this new job lately that I, i've kind of just let things rot a little bit on my personal infrastructure my proxmox box sent me an alert to say one of your drives smart health has failed i was like uh-oh so i started looking at the, Z- the zpool stats and stuff like that and it's i think it was a, a z I think it was a Z2 with five or six drives or something like that. So they're basically two parity drives and three or four data disks. I can't, I can't remember exactly, but there was a bunch of um, six and eight terabyte drives in there, which were left over from when I was in the UK. So some of those drives are seven, eight, nine-year-old drives at this point. So they're, they're about due. And I look in the Zpool stats and I'm getting, sure enough, checksum errors on the drive that failed stats. So I do a scrub and the checksums get worse and worse and worse, and then eventually it fails the drive. I'm like, okay, that drive's toast. Cool. I've still got one more. I leave it for two or three weeks. I get another notification. Another drive has failed. (laughs) And it's not even resilvering or doing anything particularly crazy. So at this point, I have no parity left. I've exceeded my fault tolerance, and the Zvol is done. Of course, they're around the same age, right? These two discs. Probably, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's kind of hard to know two drives failing so close together, whether it's a controller issue or a cabling issue, a power issue. Environmental, who knows, right? Could be age, though. Could be they've been running around the same amount of time. Maybe you put them in around the same time. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm thankfully, I still have all the data in this house, and in this house, I this is, I missed this off the initial explanation. I also have two servers in this house with complete copies of my ZFS data on it. So different ends of this house, one, one end in the basement in case a pipe bursts or something, and then up the other end of this house in the closet just behind where we're recording this, I have all of my old drives. So, so what happens is every six to 12 months, I, I see a good deal on a hard drive, something like that, and I, I'll just buy a couple. And I rotate out when that happens, the older drives from the primary system, and they go into the backup server behind me, which is its entire purpose is to save me having to replicate data across the ocean. So everything that's upstairs is a complete replication of everything that's downstairs. And they're both basically always in sync and the source of truth. So the one upstairs just gets the old drives and eventually they get put on eBay. So I have a system for rotating through drives, but it it occurred to me that that didn't extend to the UK, which is why I'm in this situation in the first place. So turns out Gary from Joe's network, as I've mentioned before, lives only a few miles away from where my UK backup server is. And after I put a call out in the last six months, I forget when exactly saying, oh, I should ask him to go and fix my server. Well, Gary, this is me asking politely. <laughs> my my sister's actually staying with us this week, so I'm going to send her back with four 14 terabyte hard drives, which I've preceded with all of my ZFS data, so I don't have to do any over the ocean replication. I'll package them up real careful, like, and then hopefully you can just uh, go over to my mother in law's house and swap out some drives for me, please, sir. Thank you, thank you very much. <laughs> it's nice to have a Gary, isn't it? That is nice. Yeah, yeah. I've been looking at this myself because I my sis my drives are probably about eight years old. They're going to go any day. And I was looking at rsync.net, and for my 25-terabyte stash of data, it's about – I think it's about $250 a month, which is just a little bit more than I really want to pay. 
I was left this week looking at R-Sync as well. So I have mm, somewhere in the region of seven terabytes of actual must not lose this data. I'm talking photos, I'm talking videos, drone footage, you know, just just stuff that I cannot recreate or, or obtain again. Mine might be 10. Yeah, if, it was, if I was really to pare it down. Yeah. And I thought to myself, after all this messing about with the Synology and all the messing about with the UK server, is this really worth it? It's so much effort, extra cognitive load, extra you know servers to keep on top of that you don't have physical access to and you have to rely on favors from buddies and all that kind of stuff. And so I thought, right, screw it. I'm actually going to seriously look at rsync.net because they have a very, very good reputation. I think it's five or six nines of uptime, all that kind of stuff. The idea is great. You know, just they're, basically an endpoint you can just point at. That's that's really all you want. They're the gold standard for ZFS replication, amongst other things. But yeah, they're, they're expensive. Seven, my, my seven terabytes would be something like 80 bucks a month, which, you know, how important is that data to you? You could argue that eighty dollars is is uh, a good price for that data, just, just as easily as you could argue it's expensive. Yeah, but just this week, it's almost like the world was like, Alex, it's time to buy some new hard drives. Best Buy released their Black Friday offers, didn't they? And they have eighteen terabyte Easy Stores, you know the shuckable ones in the USB enclosures, eighteen terabyte Easy Stores for one hundred ninety nine dollars. All right, all right. Yeah, it's a little more upfront. If you buy a few of them, but then you're done with that cost. Well, that's it, isn't it? Yeah, they and, and they they will probably last five years is typically what I target for a hard drive. And then by that point, hopefully my rotation of, of disks has taken care of it and it's gone out to pasture on eBay somewhere. Huh. All right. Thanks for the heads up. Uh, I'm going to go take a look before this publishes. <laughs> <laughs> now, I mentioned Proxmox a little bit in that segment, and I was... Is dismayed the right word? I don't know. I was, I've been so excited for many years that Chris will finally, finally try out Proxmox. And you did. And you hated it. I was so sad. Yeah, I, I guess hate, I feel like, was a little strong. Um, I was really looking forward to trying Proxmox. And we tried it on some legitimate hardware. And because it was legit enterprise hardware, it actually took a little bit longer to get up and running than I expected. But it it is up and running and you know you know what the problem was alex is it was kind of what you were describing with dsm it it's like you start fighting the system and and you just wish you could get down to the basic linux system and you know it's funny because four or five years more than that it's been more than that but years ago the server that we have the 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 server that has a lot of the storage here at the studio was running truenas and I had the same exact problem. There were issues I wanted to solve or things I wanted to tweak, and I would tweak them at the OS level, and then the GUI would override it, or the GUI wouldn't be aware of the change, or the GUI wouldn't be capable of making the change, so I'd have to drop down to the BSD layer, but the BSD layer wouldn't have a full user land set of tools because it wasn't meant for an actual use. And so I got so frustrated, we inevitably moved it over to Arch. We tried CentOS, but then we moved it to Arch, by the way, and it worked. No, people said you can't use a you can't use a rolling distro as a server, and we used it for years. We even made a bit about updating it live on the air to see if it would break. And it's funny that here we are once again. I was deploying Proxmox, and it was that same exact kind of moment of inflection, where right now I'm I'm really deploying Nix everywhere, and I realized 
I don't necessarily want all of this overhead because I'm not really taking advantage of any kind of guest migration between hosts. I don't really use their backup thing. You know, there's like a lot of really great things about Proxmox, but I'm not using them. I just want, for production purposes, a really simple, basic VM setup, maybe completely declarative. And that system is really easy to troubleshoot and diagnose. It is very minimal, but yet it has a very powerful package manager. So if I got into a situation where something went sideways, I have native tools. I'm using the native OS platform tools, and I feel like I have a better chance of recovering in that situation. And it's not that I didn't think Proxmox was great. It's just that I I found myself having to drop down to Debian to make my very first be- – just to, to launch my very first VM I had to go edit Grub in, in, and I had to go SSH in and I'm editing and I'm, and I'm like, well, why not just use Debian? I could just I could use the same primitives. I could declaratively configure it using Nix and for production, that's what I want because it's not a toy, right? Like if I want a toy VM, well, I've got VirtualBox or I've got Parallels or I've got VMware Workstation or I've got Boxes. And, and I, can, I can play around with different distros or OSs and I can play. But if I want something in production that I'm maybe even going to, like, use to make revenue, I I just want it as simple as possible. I don't want to have the DSM problems that you ran into. So it's less that Proxmox is bad and and more just you found the declarative lifestyle really compelling. There's that. And I, I actually think another analogy that works here is, you know how we have people that write in, like, every week about how great Portainer is? And all the Docker management. And then you and I are often... <laughs> Which, bizarrely, I hate. I, I don't like... It's not rational sometimes, though. Yeah. You know? And I think, for, for me, I really enjoy the clustering aspect of Proxmox. So I've got three or four boxes running Proxmox in this building. I can, from one URL, see all the LXCs I've got and all the VMs I've got across all four of those systems. And that's quite nice. But what I wonder is if... Is there a similar kind of way to tie together multiple libvirt systems using uh, what, what's what's the app vert vert manage vert manager vert manager or maybe cockpit? Yeah. yeah, I think you could. Cockpit is is a real sleeper. Yeah, yeah. Cockpit is a sleeper. I think you could use those tools. Also, I'm not like I'm not in a situation where I couldn't just. Well, I need to move a I need to move a host. All right. Well, I will. I'll go into my Nix configuration, I'll copy the config, and I'll paste it on the other machine, and then I'll just spin it up on the other machine, right? Like, it is really nice to be able to manage everything from one spot and have a UI to do that, but 99.9, literally, I'm not exaggerating, 90.9% of the time, these things are just running headless, and I don't ever interact with them, they're just doing their work. The most time, really, I spend interacting with them is when we set them up and when we update them. You know, this this makes me think about the OpenSense. Well, it was it was technically PFSense news this week, NetGate news, which we we don't have time to dig into today. But we uh, we should we're we're in support of open source. Let's just say, yeah, yeah. It seems I think you said it well. Was it on Twitter? Like OpenSense just seems to be a better better decision as time goes on, or something to that effect. Yeah, I think I switched maybe three four years ago, and I've every time NetGate pulls a stunt, I just get happier and happier with that decision. But, uh, you know, there is one appliance in my house that I've been seriously considering replacing, and that is OpenSense for a very similar set of reasons. I, I got so tired of, of not having a declarative config for that box 
that I ended up splitting out my DNS and DHCP server onto a separate system elsewhere so that I could manage the things I changed all the time. Uh, I have a blog post, which I'll put a link to in the show notes if you're curious. So I found a really interesting blog post about doing a firewall with Nix. And I, I think actually this conversation makes me realize that there is more than one box in this house that I could very easily switch to Nix and be very happy with. I don't know what it is. I, I think it must just be that cluster UI. Like I see the little green tick next to it and I'm like, oh, it, it's fine. I'm happy. I, and coming from the man who says GUIs are, you know, toys and shouldn't be trusted. It's a bit of a dichotomy, isn't it? For me, a bit, bit hypocritical for me to sit here and say that. I think I, I like that stuff too, though, but you can get it through other means. Like there's dashboards that can get those statuses, right? Because if you're using the platform tools, then you can always extract the status using all kinds of different tooling. I mean, from, you know, you could have dashboards with graphene, you could use things like net data. So I totally get where you're going, but I feel like I could solve that. I could, or another way to put it is I can scratch that itch, maybe not as well, but pretty close with other tools. Linode.com slash SSH. Head on over there to support the show and get $100 in credit that you can really kick the tires and check out the great news and how great things are getting in general. Because Linode, they're now part of Akamai. Yeah, the Akamai. But they're keeping all the tools that we love, the API, the command line stuff, the great UI, all the stuff we're using to deploy in the cloud ourselves here at JB, the stuff our audience has loved. That's all there, but now it's combined with Akamai's power and global reach, and they have the biggest, the bestest network out there. <laughs> it's really true. And now, combined with Akamai's power and global reach, boom! They're doing more for Linode customers, giving us more resources and tooling, while still giving us that affordable and reliable and scalable solution for an individual, a project, for a home labber, or for yourself. I use it for my business, and we can have systems that have massive demand and load, and I use it for my personal stuff. Yeah, I got a Minecraft server up there for the kids. I got a SyncThing server. And the nice thing is, is that Linode is going to be growing because as part of Akamai's global network of offerings, they're going to invest more in data centers. So they're building out more locations so you can serve even more places, more customers, more end users. So go check it out. We've been talking about it for a bit. Go experience the power of Linode. Now Akamai. Head over to linode.com slash SSH to learn how Linode, now Akamai, We'll scale your application from the cloud to the edge for yourself or for an enterprise of all sizes. We've been using them for years, and we love them. You will, too. Go get that $100 and support the show at linode.com slash SSH. I got all excited this week when I went onto The Verge and saw an article talking about self-hosting. I thought, this is it. We've hit the big time. Mainstream media are picking up self-hosting and going to talk about how important data sovereignty is and how important it is that people own their data and i don't know i would listen to the i listened to the hour-long podcast and didn't leave with quite such enthusiasm no i think the problem was the host came in kind of thinking that in order to do self-hosting you must become a docker master we talk about docker and container so frequently on this show that we we forget that i guess there's people outside the industry that don't don't know Docker at all that, that, that want to learn this stuff. And he wrote, uh, a lot of Docker experimentation later, I pretty much gave up. And then he also noted later on, as one person put it to me, if you ever find yourself typing in an IP address and a port number, you've officially exited the realm of things most people will ever do. They're not wrong. 
But at the same time, I think the target market for people that care enough to actually explore self-hosting in the first place is a self-selecting bunch of people. And I do think the author here does have a valid point that there are plenty of rough edges on self-hosting. What I think, though, about doing Docker a dirty like this and saying that it's it's too difficult to understand Docker and Docker was eating like eating up all my memory and stuff like that, which by the way, he was running image and doing a whole bunch of machine learning scanning and the application yeah. was probably yeah. eating up all of his memory. It, it Comments like that just show a fundamental misunderstanding of how the intricacies they're trying to explain work, which is fine. Not everybody is deep into the matrix like I guess we are at this point. But there are some approachability things that we could probably improve as a community. And I think, you know, Docker, for all of its faults, is probably the single most important thing that happened for self-hosting in dare i say the last decade because we get to a point now where we can define an entire application with all of its dependencies and all of its you know my case with traffic as my load balancer all of the tls you know rules to about how i don't have to manage my own let's encrypt certificates and all that kind of stuff anymore in 10 lines of code whereas 10 years ago i was on unraid with a virtual machine where I had to compile stuff from source. And I, I guess I'm sat here like old man yelling at cloud saying, if you think this is difficult, well, let me tell you, it used to be even more difficult. You know, uh, the author ends up kind of writing off self-hosting services aside from Plex, but he does kind of focus on applications that do data local first. Uh, he cites Obsidian. And I think that that is a good takeaway for normies is try to have try to have whatever is precious to you have a copy of it locally that you know if you were going to like take one baby step that would probably be it agree and they cited evernote as the example of being a proprietary type system that locked people into their data and meant that even though he hated evernote he still had to keep using it for a long time i think local first solves the problem of having access to your data it doesn't solve the problem of obsidian you know in a just hypothetical scenario obsidian development stops plugin development kind of dies off because of that you've built a tremendous workflow around this application yes you have access to the markdown files but because you've been using obsidian do you even know markdown um you know this into this guy's case like it doesn't 100 percent solve the problem but it does give you your data i feel like what i took away from this alex was maybe i have given short change and i should reconsider you know your 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 unraids your home assistant oss your umbrals your sandstorm your start nines that to make it that make it really easy that give you a quote unquote app store and you click that and you deploy an app and you get that application like having somebody that knows self hosting and knows what applications are good and knows how to package them up and then present them in a way that can be discoverable i think is actually pretty valuable because if if imagine for a moment if this Vergecast and author, this host and author, had maybe gone down the, the route of Home Assistant OS or Sandstorm or Casa or Umbral and didn't necessarily try to learn Docker on the command line or on the Mac first and just got right to a button where they could deploy image and start having their own image installation. Maybe this entire piece would have gone a different direction. Maybe, yeah. I mean, I think there are. There are certain aspects of all of those platforms you mentioned. Uh, Unraid is another one that are pretty close to that one-click situation. And you know the, the the issue is if you if you make it too easy, 
when you are running these services, and I think I think I've talked about this with Snaps before, if you make it too easy, people install stuff without realizing what they've done, and then they become reliant on those services, and then there's an update, or they accidentally delete something. They did, you know, they delete the Snap or the container without having a persistent volume for the first time in six months, and suddenly all their data's gone. So I think it there is a balance to be struck and I, I don't think we're quite in the right place yet clearly by this this article between making it accessible and yet also having folks understand the ramifications of the decisions they're making on day one and then the issue there is to understand those decisions you probably at some point need to have lost some data by making that decision incorrectly at some point in the past and uh it's, it's a tricky one i mean it's a really tricky one tailscale.com slash self-hosted go on over there right now and get a free personal account for up to 100 devices it's a great way to support the show tailscale is that thing you hear us talk about all the time because it's changed the way we do our self-hosting it'll change the way you do vpns honestly it's a better approach to vpns it's a zero config vpn running on top of wireguard and using the noise protocol you can easily manage resources if you need to share with lots of people or you can just simply connect all of your machines to a flat mesh network it don't care about no double NAT or nothing like that. I have used TailScale on all the cellular networks. I've used it on Starlink. I've used it on standard, regular old home connections, enterprise connections. I've used it on my VPSs, and you will too. It'll put all your resources in reach. It doesn't matter the OS. It doesn't matter if it's mobile. It doesn't matter if it's a VM. It doesn't matter if it's VS code. Everything can talk to each other using WireGuard. That's what's really awesome. And if you want to spin up some ad hoc networking to share something with a friend, you don't have to do that over the public internet anymore. You can use TailScale on your phone to sync your information over TailScale. And, of course, there's a lot of nice tooling around TailScale, like TailScale SSH, which lets you log in to your machines running TailScale with your TailScale credentials. So you don't have to move SSH keys everywhere to get a nice, smooth login process. That's great for scripts. That's also just great for when you're provisioning a system and you want to spin up, join TailScale, you can log into it. It's really powerful. And if you're an enterprise you don't have to have some big old box or some crazy piece of corporate software to do VPNs anymore. TailScale will snap into your existing authentication infrastructure. It'll support your two-factor system. It's so great. And really, TailScale is always on. It works with every OS. So it essentially creates your own private internet. And that's how I use it. It's going to change your game. You'll love it. And you can support the show and get 100 devices for free when you go to tailscale.com slash Self-hosted. That's tailscale.com slash self-hosted. Well, my social media feed was absolutely jam-packed full of the 45 Home Lab box for the last few weeks after the Creator Summit. I'm delighted to welcome both Doug and Mitch from 45 Drive to the show. Hello, gents. Hello there, Alex. Hi. There's always a fun delay as we're talking to you guys up in Nova Scotia. We, uh, <laughs> we were just talking before we press record. You guys are in a different time zone on the East Coast. That's that's how far east you are. We are indeed uh, an extra hour out east. Uh, yeah, we're, uh, yep, fly to London, you'll pass over us. So, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> the Atlantic Standard Time. Yeah, absolutely. So normally when I'm on the flight back to London, I get to Nova Scotia and I think, oh, I'm nearly there. And then I look at the the plane app and it tells me there's like four <laughs> hours left. I'm like, oh, geez. <laughs> so how, how have you found manufacturing this thing? You know, I, I can only imagine that being in North America presents some unique challenges for scaling the manufacturing process. Well, yeah, absolutely. And as you know, we, we 
open this up for pre-orders, for booking orders for people, $100 deposit. Uh, it's intended to be a boutique product. It's a, you know, it's a higher end product, uh, enterprise, try to bring it down to home lab size. And, uh, Anyway, and we don't produce in high volume. We don't, you know, Sony companies just put the stuff offshore and uh, and uh, it comes back from China or Thailand or somewhere like that. And we build in North America. Uh, it's been really interesting because uh, we we exceeded what we thought we'd get in the pre-order part. And now we wrote a check for self to cash. So now we got some manufacturing to do. Uh, our people, you know, it's good fun. Our manufacturing people are loving the challenge of this, is scaling up a little bit. And, and with a strict constraint, People order this thing, it's got a price tag to it, it's got performance promises, and it's got to come out of the box looking good, feeling good, and people got to feel good about buying it, and it's got to go do years and years of service for people. So we're trying to keep put that all together and make it work, but it's moving, and I see first uh, stuff coming off the line, and in fact, I uh, saw something in the box that a label on it said self-hosted on it. I don't know. Wonder where that's going. <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> Review unit coming our way soon, I think. Absolutely. So talk, talk to me about things that, you know, like tooling and stuff like that. If you had to buy any fun new like CNCs or stuff like that, there must be some new toys, right? Mm-hmm. Nothing new bought for it. You know, it's a subset of what we already make. We got lots of equipment uh, and we're flexible manufacturer, ultra fast, you know, ultra flexible manufacturer. Uh, tied in with the proto case, of course, most people know that. And uh, so it's good. It's just putting together, getting the instructions, uh, getting, you know, process procedure quality uh, and all the programming together for the work instructions and everything else. And uh, we built some special testing equipment for it too, because it's it's different. Uh, and selling oh, love that. wired chassis. And, you know, we deliver it to people and we deliver stuff with cables that don't work or something like that. We're making our customer miserable and we're, we're, we're digging a hole in our own wallet. So, uh, built some special testing equipment for it. So that's, that's part of the whole thing. Make sure it's right when it gets to people. We'll, we'll never be a hundred percent. Can't get there, but it's got to be a really, really high percentage. I've just been listening to the Elon Musk book, the, you know, the new Walter Isaacson one. And I'm not, I'm not drawing a comparison here. Please don't, you know, be offended or anything, but I've just got visions of you or Mitch sat on the uh, fact sleeping on the factory floor going why is it like this why is it like that you know <laughs> it was like you're trying to build a tesla or something it's funny you say that because i definitely uh draw those comparisons to elon to mr dr milburn very often and i don't think that they're uh, uh bad comparisons either so <laughs> there you go you know I'm, I'm a little eclectic in in what i uh, get to do around here and <laughs> i guess my personality too but I, I i do spend time both from you know i got one foot having developed software built electronics for years and years and and i have a deep love of manufacturing i have the luxury of being able to get to both places so anyway it's just all good fun projects is a great fun mm-hmm. so doug i'm wondering if the response was better than expected and then my second question to that is how do you get the message out to the next wave of home lab users you know, it's cool. It's been better than expected and it's kind of swamped us a little bit. We got a backlog to dig out from and we've done that with just sort of one announcement or taking pre-orders. And we really, since we took pre-orders, we've intentionally tried to really not, you know, not make any noise of no little bit here and not there. too much. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and it's been all good. So we'll see how it works. Anyway, you know, what? We, we're really looking forward to the, the first round of these things gets to ship. Uh, we got them internally. Uh, we got a video we'll talk about in a second that we just put out with one of them. And you know what? It's got to work. People got to open it up and they got to feel darn good about it. So we'll get through that. We're not in a rush to do this. 
what we want to do is we want to uh, want to get it really, really right, get a great experience. If the community wants to pull it along, great. We're there. We're behind them. We'll make them. So uh, that, that's our plan. Yeah. Yeah, Doug said something really that struck me there, and it's like we're not in a rush, right? We we want to build our community. If it's a grassroots from the ground up, uh, both with our support form that we put together, right, where just a bunch of people that are enthusiasts in home lab that just want to get together and and kind of geek out about this kind of stuff. I think that's where it all starts, right? We can grow a community there, and then of course our video content uh, that we'll never stop putting out. I think that will be also a big big uh, benefit for marketing for this this uh, the home lab. I see. So you're hoping to kind of reach people by creating some videos that would kind of demonstrate the capabilities of it that maybe other people – I mean, I have to imagine the issue is going to be something like this that's pretty high end. You're going to have to convince a certain demographic of people that it's worth the effort. So is that the hope with the video there? One of the things – so we put the, this thing, you know, design this machine, and it's got our direct wired architecture, which is sort of the basis of what we do in storage machines, which means it's got a direct lane between each storage device you plug in most spinning hard drives and the PCI lane and you got this speed. And if you look at it, you plug in uh, just run of the mill spinning hard drives, you could get three gigabytes per second. Huh. So <laughs> when you talk about that, that's filling up three 10 gigabit network connections out of this. So one of the really interesting things when you do this, it gives you all kinds of stuff, you know, there's extra CPU power in there and everything else to, to, to run stuff on the server. And when you do this, you know, what we're looking at and you go and park that in your home lab, what network do you have? You know, if you've got one gigabit, uh, 130th of the capacity fills up your one gigabit. Anyway, what we did just to kind of, you know, I have a little fear. And one of my fears is somebody pulls thing out of the box, puts Windows Home on it, you know, gets rid of Rocky Linux, puts Windows <laughs> Home on it, and then says, oh, this thing doesn't move very fast. And like, you, this is for home labs people, not home people. So we did a video and we said, let's pop this thing out and let's just run one of them. Let's get an off the shelf, unmanaged 10 gigabit switch, because it's sort of where you got to go if you want to start to see it perform. You know, you buy a hot rod, you know, you got to get it in a drag strip, right? <laughs> and and uh, so we popped that out and Mitch and team, you know, said, let's just, just go ordinary on it. Put Windows Pro decent workstation on it and see what you can do. So we did a video with it filling a 10 gigabit, uh, a 10 gigabit line. And we said, let's just, just dabble in it. Let's just show somebody video editing, which is something that try to video edit over a one gigabit network. And you're, you know, going for a coffee while everything loads. Good luck. And then (laughs) anyway, you got to watch the video and it's really, really cool because you do it and it's the, the experience is the same. Then we do it off an NVMe internal and it's the same speed. So, Anyway, uh, we're getting to show that stuff off. We want to see the community and say what you can do with this, but you got to know what you're doing. This is for people who can understand how to use the power. You know? Yeah. It, it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like enough attention has been given to that market. Maybe it's because it's not a ginormous market, but it sure is a market that needs that kind of hardware. It's a boutique market. Very much so. We've got this proposition, the value proposition in our enterprise, right? We have a rock solid enterprise business that we have, but we always hear the same thing from the the technical champions. Oh, I love these things so much. I, I wish I could convince the wife, but it's just a little bit too much. And we heard that so many times that it was just like, you know what? Let's let's go out and let's build something for this market. We're never going to be the the bottom of the barrel just 
just get something that works. Uh, we're always going to be a premium product, but I think this gets us to that great point where now some of the the average enthusiasts and home lab your home labbers can can get that and uh, kind of be viable, be a viable solution for them. Absolutely, and I one of the things I'm most excited about is all the different. I mean, there's there's tons going to be tons of RAM in these boxes, so there's going to be it's not just going to be a storage box. I was looking at 45homelab.com and noticed you've got a few app picks from the stuff. Yep, absolutely. So what we did when we designed this, we said, you know, we're going to bring Houston with this solution and we want to have a whole lot of software that come out of the box, ready to go. We've got guides telling you how to set it up for people that may be new in this space. And so when we went out and did that, we said, ask some of our support team, hey, Everyone here is pretty much enthusiasts and home lavers. Which piece of software would you like to showcase uh, for our community? And, and a lot of our, everyone kind of jumped at the opportunity. So we've got a lot of really, really cool kind of staff picks that we did on our home lab form. And, and one of them is Brandon McGinnis. He did one called Image, I-M-M-I-C-H, which is a fantastic software stack that allows you to very easily migrate images, videos, everything off of your iPhone. You can kind of just, as soon as you come in the door, it will sync to your home network and start syncing all that data off and it's really cool too because it has some ai uh built into it some machine learning where it can you know detect images and dogs things like that like machine vision so it's a really cool piece of software and we plan to keep doing this he's going to do a video on it in the future really uh soon as well and that will come with the install guide uh for anyone that purchases a home lab server we have a full install guide We've got a couple of bits of uh, content coming up related to Image. We're, we're going to meet with Alex, who's the Image developer, in two weeks' time, I think. Uh, assuming that interview goes well, you should hear him in episode 110. Oh, awesome. Also, just earlier in the show, we were talking about the Vergecast. They, they did a little deep dive into how self-hosting was too difficult, and uh, we, <laughs> we gave our thoughts there. So I, I know you gents didn't hear that, but we love image as a project i see some others on there too like plex and home assistant frigate nextcloud all sorts of great stuff you got it yeah i've been running plex for god probably six seven years at this point it's a gateway drug isn't it i'll tell you what it is very much so <laughs> it's a data eater too <laughs> you start with plex and you own the, you end up needing a lot of storage yep, <laughs> that's right so um one of the things that i try to check for just kind of curious because I know it's really early days, so my expectations are low, but are you guys trying to cultivate a community of enthusiasts? Because, you know, at the end of the day, the support is great, but the community is 24-7. Have you tried turning it off and on again? <laughs> <laughs> So, so our support uh, at, in the home lab is all going to be form-based. So we have several of our actual support team members monitoring our form uh, constantly. So, so that is something that is, is very big. And then, of course, we really, really hope that the community is going to grow and, and everyone is kind of lift each other up. And we're going to have that type of style of community because, of course, you know, the enterprise support uh, model just really doesn't quite jive with this this type of product, but we definitely are going to take care of these customers for sure. How does it impact support if I change the OS? Say I want maybe um, CentOS on there or RHEL itself or maybe NixOS. Does that does it? I knew you were going to say NixOS. <laughs> I got to get so, Nix in there. So let me there. let me comment on that and our levels and because uh, you talk about support. If you have a problem with the hardware, that's a fundamental promise that we made. 
and you do that, there's an email when you buy it and, and you'll get somebody directly on that because we, we got to deal with that. Now, this thing is home labs and it's just totally intended for people to rip it apart and put the, you know, or if you buy a chassis, right? Well, you know, we will support you directly. If you buy a wired chassis, we'll support you directly up to the point where the wires end. That's what you bought from us, right? So that's our promise, reasonable. And the minute you get over that, the problem is, and again, if you try to sell them to an enterprise support channel with you know full enterprise support, it's just too expensive. And somebody says, well, I tried to put whatever on there and I can't get it working. That's forum stuff, right? And we'll come in, we'll help people with that. You put a new OS on, good, come on, put her in the forum, people will help you. There's no way that we can come in and support every operating system, that doesn't work. But we'll come in, we will, our promises, we will be regularly monitoring our people off, our enterprise support team who have a real interest, Home Labs will come through, pass through, touch the questions that they can, but the community's there too. So, and that's, that's the place, you know, and, and, and again, people are doing that because they love doing it. Right. And they love digging in and forms the center of that come in there, give it a good search, throw a question out if you need a question. And uh, I think what we're going to find is, is the, you know, already we're seeing it on, on our forum, eh, Mitch? So. Yeah. And, and we're Canadians. Uh, you ask us nicely. There's not a whole lot you're not going to get from us. <laughs> so uh, yeah. We're very helpful to a fault. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Hannah Montana Linux is supported on the 45 Drives Home Lab box. So it's 45homelab.com for the forums, right? Correct. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Temple OS also. That's that's one of our others. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. Forum.45homelab.com. Now, I know when you locked up all those YouTubers in a room that you guys were talking about the future and the roadmap and all that kind of stuff. I'd love to know what's... I mean, I know, I know you've got to ship the damn thing, first of all, but what happens next? So what you're going to see in the short term, uh, there's some things that people are asking us about, and uh, we're going to put up there the things that can, can, people can buy off the website. Uh, one of them is enterprise drives, and it's a really interesting topic, and actually you can also get some heat if you get into the discussion about enterprise drives, whether they're different consumer drives. Yeah, they're different. They're way different. They're a different beast. <laughs> it's almost as bad as tabs versus spaces, the yeah. discussion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, they're uh, enterprise drives. You know what? Look, if I'm, if I'm running a home labs workload, I'd buy consumer drives and go to Amazon for that. We can't add to that. But we're a up-and-coming vendor of enterprise drives because the way we support them, we, we make warranty returns really easy and we make buying them really easy. Uh, and, uh, so we're putting them up there because some people, you know, uh, some people like, you know, you can go buy a Kia and get back and forth to work really easily, but some people want to buy a Mercedes and a Lexus or, you know, whatever else. Right. And if you want to do that, yeah, they're different. Uh, they got huge value. They'll run forever for you and, uh, robust as anything. So you're going to see enterprise hard drives on there. Uh, we don't expect it to pop off there because like I say the economics, yeah, use consumer drives if you're practical about it, but you like to drive a Mercedes then good, great, you can get these. Uh, you also see some uh, 10 gigabit switches up there for convenience, but you know, buy them wherever you want. Our own products coming out, uh, you're going to see some accessories coming out, uh, things like 3D caddies and uh, band shrouds and things like that that have various usages through that. We're going to have this as our outlet where people can just go, nice and easy place to buy them. Mm. On the storage machines themselves, we're just you know, really looking at that and trying to zone in on what the products are for people. And it's so, you know, to be relate to us, it's big, strong, fast, right? But we need to scale it down. And what you're going to see in this is 
basically we're going to come out with an eight drive unit and a four drive unit. Oh, they're going to have lots of, com- of, of you know compute processing horsepower and RAM on them, uh, and they'll probably will also make them available as you know you know wired chassis for people that want to build their own on it. So you're going to see those two devices coming out. When that comes out, we're going to tackle a mini SSD version for somebody who wants to make something that's got <laughs> IOPS everywhere on that scale. And they will be an interesting package. They won't be in rack mount. And the 19-inch won't have much to do with them because uh, they're going to be really an optimized package. You got my attention. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, they're going to come out and, and say, we're going to try to get the price point. It's going to be premium, but it's going to be affordable premium. You know, it's not, it, it's going to be, uh, if I could move into Cadillac, Lexus, and not Ferrari, McLaren, <laughs> okay? And uh, although we're going to push that performance up, you know, and the performance difference is going to be up there. Last thing we're going to put out, uh, and actually I think it might be the first thing we put out because it's it's really easy development path for them. I've used a number of times. Uh, when I want just the right computer, uh, example at home, uh, my my little home network, I had a Linux server in the back and I got a desktop I work on and I got a machine in my living room underneath my TV and it, it's Netflix, it's YouTube. That's most of what I do. And it's a network client for me when I do other stuff like that. I'm an old guy, so I'm like different. I'm not Mitch, but old school kind of guy, but I use it for that. And I, I go, I want dead quiet, low power, yes, fanless. Yes. And I want Linux on it. Yes. It's got Ubuntu on it. Yes. And so, and I want it to look good and feel good because there's a bunch of little cheapy box stuff you can get to do that, which again, and I don't put that down. If that's what you want, that's it. But we're going to put a thin client uh, in, and there'll be two versions, I think. It's going to look good, feel good. You put it in your hand, it's robust, it's solid, it's nice. NVMe boot off it and, uh, and, and storage, and uh, it'll have, you know, decent video, get 4K out, HDMI on it. And uh, that's... Uh, and, and that device, and we're going to have two versions. One's going to be Intel, and I think, and uh, Jeff Soyum, where he's had all kinds of ideas and this stuff Crack for us, computing. he's going to yep. probably talk about it with us uh, before it comes out. And then uh, Jeff Gearling, uh, we'll have something ARM in there as well for anybody that wants raspberry to do a Linux pie. Oh, that Jeff with it. He has to get, he has to shoehorn <laughs> a Raspberry Pi into yeah. everything. Yeah. That sounds really <laughs> compelling though. It sounds like you're making yet another product I'm going to want to buy. Good. Well, we'll get it out. We're trying to get that price point there. And, you know, again, this kind of thing, if we could sell 20,000 of them right out of the gate and I could get a, you know, a sweatshop in a, in a, you know, in some <laughs> country, lesser developed country at low wage to make it, we get the price way down. It's not what we do. It's North American built. We got people that build them with pride. We got to build better products. They got to be solid. They got to feel good. They got to function well. That's where we go. That's who we are. And uh, and that's where we're going. So we're going to try to balance that price point. Too expensive. Nobody's going to buy it. So we got to walk the tightrope on that and make something people can buy and people can afford. So that's what we're working on right now. So. I look forward to that. Gentlemen, thank you. It was our pleasure. Thank you very much. And congratulations. Absolutely. Yeah. Start of a fun journey. Hope to see you guys in Nova Scotia soon. <laughs> yes, I look forward to it. Absolutely. We'll be following it. 45homelab.com. You know it's here and you know how excited we are. They're big, strong, fast servers ready for you to go. And they're inspired by enterprise designs and powered by open source. The HL15 units are using 45Drive's well-known direct wired approach, which opens up all those lanes, baby. That's right, bandwidth, high performance for your home lab. And they've got a community forum, which is active, available, engaging, and helpful. 
and they can, man, they can really move some data on this thing. You know, 45 Drives has a great reputation in the industry in general. And I think this was the right group to come together and actually create something like this. Something that could be created in a way that us home labbers who are looking for the right piece of hardware, something we can really trust and rely on because we're building our digital castle, they get that. Oh, man, I'm looking at the picture right now. It looks so good. It looks so good. And depending on what you want, you can get a fully built one. You can just get the chassis and the backplane. Chassis, backplane, and PSU would probably be the way I would go, but they got different options for you over there. It's here, you guys. The 15-bay home lab server, the HL15, has an enterprise architecture, but at a scale that works for the home lab. 45homelab.com. Well, I need to start this segment by issuing apology. I think I, I inadvertently upset a reasonable chunk of our listenership, mostly based out of Ireland. In episode 107, around the timestamp of 34 minutes, I used a phrase that has been common parlance in the UK as long as I can remember, and I had absolutely no idea of the negative connotations. I used the phrase uh, throwing a paddy when I was talking about Brent's brother's laptop and how it um, threw, threw a bit of a tantrum. That was the understanding that I had of the phrase at the time. I've since been told that there are other negative connotations to that phrase. So this is just a very short you know, way of, of doing a public service announcement effectively to, to those of you that, that weren't familiar, like I was not, of the origin of that phrase. So if I offended you in that episode in 107, I am deeply sorry. It was a complete, you know, innocent use of the phrase. I had no idea of the origin. And we'll put a link in the show notes to a an article from the BBC talking about the origins and all that kind of stuff. So I'm really sorry to the people of Ireland. Today I learned. I I did not did not even face me, but of course, being a Yank over here, I don't think I would have caught it. All all we can do as people in the public eye, so to speak, I mean I know there's only a very small audience in compared to the eight billion people on this planet, but is adjust what we do based on what we know and the facts we're in possession of. So uh, if you hear me use that phrase again, you can judge me. But um, yeah. Thank you everybody who did reach out at uh, selfhosted.show slash contact where you can give us all kinds of feedback and tell us about cool projects you're working on. Or you can boost into the show using a new podcast app at podcastapps.com. Or if you want to keep your dang app, well, get Albie. GetAlby.com. You top it off on the Lightning Network. Go to the podcast index. Find us and boost in. We got links in the notes. And Dr. Doggy Balls <laughs> boosts in with 22,222 sats. <clears throat> I am an adult. And he used the podcast index because he wants to keep his dang podcast app. He says, fellas, I'm not sure where to boost into, but uh, when are you guys going to do a dive into the Nix Bitcoin project? I recently got a note up and running, and I've been very impressed. It seems like the perfect project for JB, given it combines Nix OS with self-hosting. Mm-hmm. A Bitcoin and a Lightning Node. Anyways, I'm just throwing my vote. I think listeners would enjoy hearing more about this project. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Mr. Balls. <laughs> I appreciate that boost. Mr. Balls. Uh, you know, that's why we were actually getting Proxmox up and going, is one of our like second or third VMs was probably going to be a Nix Bitcoin VM. I actually, I think what's brilliant about the Nix Bitcoin project is it shows us a path forward. Why couldn't we have Nix Home Assistant? Why can't we have Nix Plex? Why can't we have Nix Media? Right? Why can't we have Nix Perfect Media Server? Because all it is is just overlays on top of Nix. And it's a curated set of overlays that make this project. And I'm just saying, 
Somebody out there could probably do the same thing with Nick's perfect media server. There'll be a link in the show notes if you like, if you like to the, the NixOS stuff I have on perfectmediaserver.com. <laughs> it, it is seriously something I'm thinking about. And, uh, you know, the whole, the whole thing with Nix, and I've been talking a bit with Wimpy about this from Determinant Systems, is to flake or not to flake. And they are, you know, they've just launched Flake Hub. So they are clearly pro flakes. And I think as far as most people in the Nix community are concerned, flakes have just been accepted to the point now where let's draw a line under it and just use them as if they're stable. And then we'll let the project catch up. So Yeah, because technically considered experimental by the project. Technically, yeah. It's the worst kind of, of right, the best or the best kind of right, depending on your point of view. I actually, I think you're onto something there. It's like TrueNAS. It's like all uh, Umbral. Like if you want to get going really quick, it's great. But then when you want to put it in production, I think you want something you can control, something you can version. Uh, so I think you nailed it. Thank you. Thank you, Doctor, for the boost. Gene Bean comes in with a row of ducks using Fountain and says, Chris, if you don't trust those SD cards, well, I've been there and I've done that. They're actually designed for ESXi with remote logging, and they have actually failed on me at times. Sometimes both have failed. They're not designed for Proxmox. I suggest you replace it with a boss card. Well, very interesting. We actually just replaced it with a with a disc <laughs> that's what we did i kind of like the idea though i wanted to put them back in you know if you got i wouldn't i think i got um two 256 gig cards that's nice for a little backup maybe doing your logging there i think that'd be pretty great for that i found a really interesting link when i saw this piece of feedback come in uh talking about how to boot x86 pcs as in legacy systems from nvme drives so i don't oh. know if you want to explore this but there'll be a link to that in the show notes well, that's pretty neat. I've been trying to source some 32-bit systems for a 32-bit challenge. Where do you buy? What I think part of the issue is is that NVMe typically isn't supported by legacy BIOS. And I don't sure. know this Dell that you've got. Does it have Uf UFI on it? I think it does. But it's like a weird Dell server UEFI. Ah, okay. I've been trying to find a 32-bit server. Something with a lot of RAM and a lot of processors, but 32-bit. Something that we could have three or four people use simultaneously. If anybody has any ideas, boost in and let me know. Sorry I asked, but what for? <laughs> for a 32-bit challenge, of course. Can I? Can, oh, can okay. we live for a week on 32-bit software? And I thought about okay. this. Now, how do, okay. What, am I going to send a 32-bit laptop to Brent, you know, okay. up in the woods? No. But I could set him up with a remote system, right? Get him and Wes and myself running on a remote 32-bit server for a week. I, the I think things you do for content, my friend. <laughs> yeah. Nord comes in with 10,000 sats using Castomatic, which is a fantastic app for iOS. He writes, great to hear more on the progress of the year of voice. Yes, thank you to Paulus for joining us. He says, also a big shout out to the new Shelly Mini devices. They're tiny and easy to fit behind even the small and difficult walls. Uh, you can also flash them with ESP Home or Tasmoda without any effort to prevent it from, um, I guess, you know, any cloud rug pull. Uh, love, I, I love them, and I'd love to hear more about the projects you've been working on with Jeff. I didn't know about these Shelly Minis. They they look a good sort of 30-ish percent smaller than the old ones, which weren't themselves exactly large. I think I think I need to try one of these. Yeah, what I really like about it is just how how straightforward it is. You just put the wires in there, you screw it down. Like, you know, even a dunce like me can figure it out. It's straightforward until you get a three-way circuit or something like that. And then it gets a bit, like, you've got to figure out about travelers and, yeah. yeah. And the electricians just use whatever color wires they want in the box. So you actually have to learn 
You actually have to learn electrics. Yeah, it's a pain. There, There's a lot there to it. I guess I got one other thing I'm going to put out there to the audience. If anybody's ever worked on replacing their thermostat with an ESP home, let me know. I got a DC thermostat. There's nothing on the market that integrates with Home Assistant that uh, I can use. I got to build my own. I got to build my own if I want to control my thermostat. And I'm up for the challenge. Ben, the tech guy, sends in a row of ducks using the podcast index. He says, all this talk of the open voice stack gave me an idea. What if I could liberate my old Amazon Echo? It turns out it runs Android 5 under the hood. After some research, some exploits, and some pin shorting, I managed to root it, and now I can extract the microphone data and control the LEDs. I'm hopeful I can get this thing connected to Home Assistant somehow. Yeah, I wonder. Wow. I uh, So I have my little MT5 dev box that Paulus was talking about in that last episode. It arrived, and it, this this thing is awesome. It's It's the size of like 10 pennies stacked on top of each other. It's really small and really cute. And uh, I wonder, like they made the installation process on ESP Home unbelievably easy. So I wonder if you could leverage some of that stuff. Once you get like a UART port on this uh, Alexa box or something. Maybe. I wonder if you could flash over serial that way or something like that. Well, you've got one of those big Googs uh, home devices behind you. and uh, Retired. Yeah, I've retired it. Yeah, you know. Eric D. sent us a link this week. He sent 12,345 sats, and uh, some folks over at Hackaday have swapped an ESP32 into a mini version of one of those. Really? uh, Yeah. Ooh. Mm Because it's it's a nice screen. Yes, it is. It's actually not a bad design, right? And the speaker's okay for, like, and microphones for, if you could get it working with Home Assistant. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So what I've done is I used to have this Google Home, like, display, Nest display, I think they call it now, like, sat on my desk next to me when, when I'm working. It's like a photo frame or whatever. But I've replaced it with just a Linux box. And yeah. turns out having an actual computer is way more useful than just having a photo frame. Yeah, and I got rid of the photo frame stuff functionality when I switched to the um, fully kiosk browser. And, you know, if you pay for it, one of the features is you can just point it at a Samba share and it'll just rotate through your recent videos and it can do like face zoom. and Ooh, that is nice. I basically, I just have it pointed at my favorite directory and image. So I, when I favorite something, it, it just automatically shows up on my uh, tablets running, running fully kiosk. Yeah. That's it. That's the solution I've been looking for. I, I ended up on this. This is actually a box running Nix, this little display I've got that replaced the Google Home. I ended up having to revert to Xorg so that I could get synergy working it's funny man i just had to revert two machines to xorg this week <laughs> look at us we're a couple old men going back to xorg this week rust desk well, synergy doesn't work on wayland oh rust desk um you, you can't do unattended remote connections with rust desk you can use it now with wayland which is nice but somebody has to be there to approve the connection right that's no good okay. so if anybody in the audience knows of a modern equivalent of Synergy. There's an open source version, I forget yeah. what it's called, but it doesn't work with, with Wayland either because I tried it. Uh, if you have one that can share a mouse and keyboard between a Mac and a Linux box in the same style at Synergy, like you go to one side and it just transfers, please let me know. I would love to know. <laughs> this is us asking for all the things. Okay, our last boost comes from Sam Squanch, 10,000 sets. Uh, do you guys have any suggestions for replacing Wise Cams with another decently priced Wi Fi camera? Uh, my old house is not conducive to running network cables. And I like this one because I, I have the same question. I unfortunately want them to be Wi-Fi devices, and I'd like them to be powered by USB, 
but I'd like something a little more robust than the wise cameras. I know, of course, Alex, you would probably recommend just bite the bullet, run the Ethernet, do PoE, and run good cameras because it's never going to be 100% unless it's wired. Well, I'm, I am sat here looking at my blue iris. You know, on, on that Nix box we just talked about, I've got my blue iris web interface sat there permanently 24-7 now. And uh, it's it never drops a frame. You know, when I, I, I know if there were six Wi-Fi cameras that that wouldn't be the case. It's also really hard to beat the Wise's price point. Yeah. I, and I know there are lots of privacy concerns with Wise and all the rest of it. So, you know, here be dragons. You pay a price one way or another. They are pretty compelling for certain use cases. I feel like the Wise Bridge was the piece that I needed to kind of smooth out the Wise cams for me. I don't need the Wise app at all anymore. Um, and the Wise Bridge is what I, I – I use that as a front that I feed into anything that I'm going to use to record the Wise footage. Thanks to everybody who did boost in. We we can't get to all of them for time constraints, but I do appreciate everybody who boosts in. And this is a big part of what we do to make our audience the largest customer as a business, but also just as a content focus. So thank you for taking the time to boost in either with a new podcast app or using something like the Podcast Index or Fountain's website. We'll have a boost barn so you can read all the boosts. They'll be in the show notes. And uh, we did manage to stack 96,232 sats. And shout out to Mick Zip who sent us 20,000 sats, just to say he's still loving Plex. But Nev came in to say Cody has actually been the solid solution for him for all the years. So there was a little debate back and forth there. If you'd like to boost in, we would appreciate it. Or if you'd like to use your Fiat Fun coupons, you can become an SRE subscriber. You can go over to selfhosted.show slash SRE. You get an ad-free version of the show and a little extra post-show as a thank you. Ah, yes, those capitalism tokens. <laughs> That's a good one. Did you just you just come up with that? No. Ah, well, when it's a CBDC, that I think that'll be a legitimate name for it. Capitalism tokens. Yeah, I, I wish I could take credit for that one. Unfortunately not. You can find more of me at alex.ktz.me and the show, if you want to write in, selfhosted.show slash contact. Yes. I'll be over on the Twitter from time to time at Chris LES. Of course, I'll be at the Adopting Bitcoin conference in El Salvador if you happen to be there. And I'm always lurking around our matrix at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash matrix. Twitter. You see Elon issued a bunch of shares this week and it's worth less than half what he paid for it officially. Yeah. 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 Not great. Yeah. Well, not, you know, also a hot tip. Uh, maybe don't spend top dollar for a platform that is funded by advertising during an adpocalypse. Probably not going to go well. Let that sink in. Yeah. That's <laughs> just bad timing. <laughs> Genius. Genius. As always, thank you so much for listening, everybody. That was selfhosted.show slash 109.